Hello and welcome to another episode of The Grey NATO, a loose discussion of travel, diving, driving gear, and most certainly watches. This is episode 143. I'm James Stacey. I'm joined as ever by my illustrious co-host and future celebrated author, Jason Heaton. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. How are you doing, Jason? Oh, I'm doing great. Yeah, it's a, it's a busy, exciting week here in Minneapolis. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like we've been we've been crawling. I, I've been watching you crawl towards this weekend or this 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 week for a while. This uh, you know the launch of the book. Yeah, it's been it's been a long time coming. I think you know the writing of the book is one thing, and then kind of becoming a, a publisher for the first time has been a very uh, sort of baptism of fire sort of learning experience. Sure. But then now this this launch is it's exciting. It's fun. It's fun to see the response. I've been putting out stuff on Instagram, and I. I've done a pre-order for signed copies to my Substack subscribers, and that's gone really well. But you know, it's a lot of a lot of moving parts um, yeah. between shipping software and FedEx and running to FedEx for dropping things off and that sort of thing. But all it's all good. It's all fun. It's all part of it. Well, I'm glad to hear you're enjoying enjoying the process, even though the book is technically finished. Now, I guess it it finally starts. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, it's it's a fun thing though, and it's an exciting thing because uh, we're going to have a, a kind of a bigger chat about the the new book and and where people can find it and what it's about, and we got some other little tidbits for later in the show. So I think we can we can keep all that for there, and and I'm excited to hear all about it. And I have a, a bunch of questions about what it is to to write a book now that we get sure. a chance to talk about it. Yeah. But um, what what have you been up to just in the last little while? I saw on your Instagram you had a a, a nice little getaway. Yeah. So uh, last week was my birthday. So Gashani and I, you know, we Happy typically birthday, of course. try to thank you. Uh, we <laughs> try to get away for, for, for these sorts of things. And and we had rented a cabin on, on vacation rentals by owner VRBO. And it's, uh, it was a 1970s A-frame cabin up on the North shore of Lake Superior that had been recently renovated and, and put out for rent. And what a spectacular place. I mean, it was right out of that the book that people might be familiar with called cabin porn. It just had mm. um, beautiful modern furnishings and perched on a, on a hilltop overlooking Lake Superior with 40 acres of pine woods around it. And uh, just such a peaceful, wonderful spot. So, you know, we did a, did a bit of hiking. It was up near the, the split rock lighthouse and they've got some hiking trails around there. So we wandered over there and did some, some photos and hiked a bit and, uh, and this this was a trip where you know it's a good five six hour drive to get there um, from here, and we, we typically would have taken our comfy cruise control equipped heated seat equipped Volvo um, for a trip like this, but we decided oh, let's let's have a bit of an adventure. So we we loaded up the Defender for this one. It was the longest trip we've done in that truck, um, and and part of the reason was. Um, you know, we want to go further afield this summer in the Defender and do some more camping around the Great Lakes and kind of wanted to see how it felt to do a, a five or six hour trip in it. And it did fine. You know, it's big cushy tires and, and coil suspension. It's, it's, it's noisy certainly, but it did fine on the road. And, um, I'm glad we took it because one of the things we did was go exploring and we found some kind of quote unquote Jeep roads or fire roads Right uh, to to try out, um, uh, you know, a little bit of light off roading, and then the the actual road to get up to the the cabin where we stayed was this three quarter of a mile steep dirt road that required low range gearing and a four wheel drive, according to their their VRBO description, which was uh, 
enticing to say the least. So that was yeah. That's how you know. That's how you know you picked well on Airbnb. <laughs> they have to war- warn you what kind of car you must uh, use four wheel drive. What kind of yeah. car you're going to need? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, yeah. You always know you chose well. I I had a cabin. Well, the February before the pandemic kind of kicked off, and uh, they were very clear like you can't. And this was in February, right? So it's very oh, yeah. you know, a lot of snow up here, and they're like you you should really consider like. <laughs> a high clearance four wheel drive vehicle with snow tires and the, the Jeep just crawled up it like you would expect. But yeah. we saw, you know, it seems like most people are using pickup trucks when it's that kind of road. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Great, and, great. And, and unsurprising that the Defender can, can kind of billy go along that kind of stuff. It was fun. And we, we brought our drone and we, we shot some drone footage out over the lake and, and, and of the Defender going up and down the driveway and kind of cruising around. And I, Gashani's going to get around to editing some of that video, but we, we looked at the raw footage and it's, uh, it's going to be cool. So you'll have to stay tuned for that. We'll throw that up on, on Instagram, uh, at some point. We, we did have a bit of, a bit of a Land Rover kind of unexpected adventure, um, <laughs> <laughs> coming home. Uh, yeah. we, you know, people always expect Land Rovers to leak oil. And, and the surprising thing about this Defender is that it hasn't leaked a drop since we got it. Well, we, we stopped at a gas station on our way home as we were passing through Duluth and, uh, I uh, peeked underneath and there was just this growing, very concerning puddle of oil, um, <laughs> which looked new. And uh, yeah. so we we quickly kind of drove down the road to a big empty parking lot and crawled underneath. And, you know, Gashani being the sport she is, she was she was under there and with a rag and wiping everything clean. And then she she was lying under the truck and she said, uh, you know, don't listen to this, mom. Um, she said, uh, OK, start it up and rev the engine while she was under the truck. So. <laughs> I did that and she was trying to see where oil was kind of spurting out. And indeed she identified that it was coming from where the oil filter goes onto the block. And, uh, I thought the worst, you know, I just thought, Oh geez, then some rear main seal or something's gone. So, um, I went over to a nearby auto parts place and got a, a new oil filter and a, and a filter wrench and, uh, did a, a quick swap of the oil filter in this parking lot. And that didn't correct the problem. But I, as I started fishing around a bit, um, there are a couple of oil cooler lines that route from that same filter housing to the front of the front of the truck um, for cooling the oil, and uh, and one of those fittings was just finger loose. Um, oh no! So fortunately, I had a, a tool <laughs> kit, and I pulled out my my big adjustable wrench and was able to crank it down, and that solved the problem. And we were on our way. So it wasn't a, it certainly wasn't a catastrophic issue. It could have been. <laughs> we would have pretty much emptied the engine of oil if it had popped loose completely. Um, but, uh, I wouldn't call this a specifically kind of Land Rover-y kind of quirk, you know, I wouldn't disparage the brand based on this. I think it's a 30 year old truck that was running at highway speeds for, you know, six, seven, eight hours by that point And probably just, uh, shimmied loose a, a nut that was on there for 30 years. So all's yeah, well that well, ends that'll well. certainly happen. Yeah. 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 I've but, had some, uh, I've, I, uh. On, on my side, I didn't get any sort of getaway. Uh, you know, that sounds awfully nice. A cabin, kiss some time in a cabin sounds uh, lovely, especially as uh, uh, I woke up today to snow in Toronto. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, uh, Jason gets an extra oh, wow from that because we are, we've recorded this episode twice. Uh, this is the second time we've done this. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's the first time where GarageBand, which is the app I use to edit the show, has ever let me down in a hundred and nearly 150 episodes at this point, uh, including some of the ones we never counted at the early days. Um, 
Yeah. But yeah, I got uh, I got a, a good three hours into the original edit of this episode, and it corrupted the file. And um, and then the best I could get out of it was a a piece of the file, essentially the amount I had already edited. But something had happened to my vocal track. Wow. On Just, on the yeah. recording, and it sounded kind of pitched up, and then without any background or any depth, it kind of sounded like it was playing at a different bit rate. If you yeah. know a little bit more about audio, much lower bit rate. Uh, and I couldn't, I could not figure out what the problem was. I couldn't replicate it with another file and I was just losing time. So unfortunately I had to, <laughs> I had to ask Jason to record it again. Uh, so that's the, uh, that's the oil leak on, on my side here is uh, more digital. <laughs> I did get through uh, on, on the last episode, I spoke about how I was looking for some off-road driving lights. Uh, yeah. So I was able to buy some lights and a bar to mount them on. That's all mounted. I put it up on my Instagram. I haven't driven it around or used it long enough to have any opinion. And, and I wouldn't want to steer someone wrong, even on just a few hundred dollars worth of worth of lights. Uh, so I think we'll we'll probably get to that in a future episode. But so far, it's a, it some lights from Oxbeam and, and a bar from Rugged Ridge, and, and uh, the install was okay. And uh, and they, they seem to be working okay. I'm just not. I haven't had a chance to take them out to where they'll actually be used. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully, we can get that uh, in before the next episode. I can't wait to see some photos. Uh, you'll have to take some good photos of of the. The beam, you know, the, the beam, yeah. light pattern and that sort of thing. I'll be curious to see that. Yeah, it's. Br- I know. I took, it, I took it just after I installed them and it's bright enough to see it in daylight. Oh, wow. Uh, h- yeah. Hitting the oh, road. Geez. Wow. Uh, so it's a, a, diff- it's a different sort of light. Um, definitely not, not the kind of thing you want to um, uh, you want use to use to signal somebody uh, who's going too slowly <laughs> in the left lane or whatever. Oh, man. But beyond, beyond that, beyond um, a, a small car project that seems to have gone okay. Uh, I, I got a chance to play around with the the new Tudor Black Bay models, the Sterling Silver nine two five and the uh, Solid Gold eighteen K. Yeah. Um, the eighteen K hands on will come out a few days after this episode, so I won't go too deep into that. But with the with the silver, my hands on is on a Hodinky. I'll put it in the show notes, of course, if you haven't had a chance to see it yet. I was kind of blown away because I didn't fully understand the watch or or really understand why why you would bother. Like you know how much different could silver seem than steel? Yeah, I, I was I was uh, I was wrong in that assumption. It's a it feels really uh, like a like a an oddly dressy kind of heirloom quality vintage effect dive watch. It's I've never huh. worn a watch like it, and it's you know huh. it feels a lot like a like a black bay, of course. Yeah, and um and 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 I think. You know, like I said in, in the write-up, is is that you know you have a friend call you and they're like, "Hey, I want to buy a great dive watch. I've been looking at the Tudor Black Bay Fifty Eight. Which one do I get?" I don't think you would tell that person. Oh, absolutely, get the silver one. <laughs> right. I think this is the the dive watch for the guy that has ten or twenty dive watches in some yeah, ways. Like yeah. like a deep enthusiast. It's like a model progression thing where eventually the progression kind of becomes silly or weird and only makes sense for those who have followed the whole progression. Right, right. Right. Whether that's from a more, uh, a, a slower sports car to a faster sports car. I made a Porsche analogy that people really didn't like in my, <laughs> in my write up, but I stand by it. I, it's not about Porsches or 911s. It's, it's about model progressions. And I think that they're finding ways of progressing the 58 um, so that it's not just color permutations of the exact same watch, which they've been doing since 2013. Yeah. And so I, th- I think we've seen at now eight years, this huge line is built and, and boom, we've got, we've got these weird ones and it's weird. I really like it. Um, you know, the silver uh, it is much more, um, it has more of its own color. It takes less of its color from the surrounding than steel does. I guess it's maybe it's a little bit less reflective. It's very white, 
hmm. but it's not colorless like um, white gold often can be or platinum. I would have expected more reflective for some reason. It's it, but it's not a high polish, right? I mean, that's the it's yeah, it's not a high polish. I think it, that's another thing that's nice is they they kept the brushed finishing despite it being a um a, arguably a very dressy as dressy as a, a dive watch can get kind of. Yeah, I find I think that there's something even less sporty about a silver watch than a gold one. Yeah, like yeah. the gold one, I have I have like a framework to think about: solid gold, submariners, and the rest. Mm-hmm. But with the silver, you just kind of like I don't like what is this? Huh? Gosh, I can't wait to try it. I can't picture it. I can't. I can't imagine. I've I've had very little experience with silver itself. I mean, other than some good silverware and a tea set. But yeah, yeah. And then as far as the, um, like the color of the dial and the bezel, it's, it's strange because it is that kind of charcoaly gray. Mm-hmm. So if there's not a lot of light, it's very dark and purpley like taupe. Oh, okay. But if you, if, you know, if I put two flashes in a room for a wrist shot, it's this kind of medium flat gray. And I think that, that kind of Delta between the two colors is really, is really appealing. It's a great, huh. it's a good looking thing. Huh. And it's kind of has that kind of shapeshifter appeal of gray like black doesn't quite do the same thing blue can do this if it's kind of a medium navy blue where it can yeah. look black sometimes and it can look quite bright other times but gray does this the most where there's this latitude to the way that it, it kind of shows up that's uh that's nice I, I enjoyed the watch it's not a huge premium over steel one and, and i think yeah if you've if you've had a bunch of tutors or if you've had a bunch of dive watches and that's what's kept you from buying a black bay i think that they made one here that that is just it's different and and, and kind of distinct all on its own while huh. still following that kind of standard format. And, and I like, you know, it's still 200 meters water. They didn't make a different watch in many right. ways. It still has all of the, the normal bone of your great bezel, amazing loom. Yeah. You know, I, 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 it's a weird way to use the term because it's exactly what it is from a watch marketing standpoint is a novelty, but it, it's like an actual novelty. It's this, yeah, it, it doesn't feel like core product. Like I said, I don't think it's the black bay that you would recommend to someone just getting into dive watches or who wanted a, an everyday dive watch to, beat on and wear at the office and the rest. But if you're maybe more of a dress watch guy or you love desk diving and that's more of your speed in terms of approaching a dive watch, or in many ways, I think like if you're, you've just had a lot of dive watches and you want something that feels special, I think this does that. And I think that's what they've achieved with it. Well, and I think that size too, I mean, it's the 39 millimeter size, which is the great move on this one. And, and, um, I think it will have that unisex appeal i mean you know well, for sure gashani's gotten jaded with all the watches that pass through our house here and and this one even you know made her eyebrows go up a little bit so that's uh that's saying something i think it's uh it's an intriguing choice and i i can't wait to check it out at uh at our local uh tutor retailer here i really want to get my hands on that yeah and then with the 18k you know i'll, I'll I'm, I'm still kind of forming all my opinions on it i can't i can say that i didn't love the color um, and, and I think it's mostly because that green on the gold tone feels very not special at this point because so many brands have done the green on the bronze. Yeah. Like even, even Tudor, right. Yeah. Has done it. Um, so that it, it didn't feel as special to me as the silver one. Like it didn't feel as distinct. And, and, and in some ways it almost felt like I couldn't appreciate the fact that it was a solid gold watch because the, the overall vibe felt very bronze to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in my mind, I just think it would it, like, and maybe this is where they're going with it, may, or maybe this is a kind of a, a an anomaly, a one-off thing. But a, with a black dial or or the blue dial, like either the two ones that already existed in the fifty-eight range, goodness sakes, it'd be it'd be something extra special. Or that gray. I mean, that gray, gray even tilt, from the silver sure. one would look really cool. Yeah, yeah. No, I yeah. agree. I don't think the green looks bad in any way. It just like it, it, that is such a hot color that it it, it doesn't feel distinctive. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I, it was a thrill. You know, it was a thrill to get a chance to see that stuff. This isn't. Uh, this is especially being in Canada. I'm not seeing a lot of the new stuff. If I'm not seeing almost any of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was awfully nice that uh, Tudor was able to arrange for that and, and send him over. And I had him for you know six hours, just enough time to you know get the shots that we needed. Yeah. And uh, and then put the stuff together. So the the nine two five, like I said, is on Hodinkee, and the eighteen K will be out uh, early next week. I assume if you're listening to this on the Thursday, it comes out. I'd expect it to be on the site Monday or Tuesday, but these things change. So sometime next week, I'm sure. Um, Jason, what do you say we get into uh, some wrist check? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, you, you you had those watches for such a short time. What what's your palate cleanser after after trying those out? What are you wearing? Well, yeah, for watches and wonders, I, I wore almost exclusively a Garmin so that I could get my notifications. Yeah. Um, because there's just so many messages, it's so busy, and and then the other plus that I found uh, is that the the smartwatch thing makes more sense to me when you have to wear a mask. You go to the grocery store, your your face unlock on your phone doesn't work, so you've got to use both hands if you want to see a message or reply to a message. <laughs> right. And this way, you can really like. I'm at the grocery store. You kind of pick weird hours so you don't have to stand in line or that. I like everybody's scenario in their city is different, but some of the grocery stores in, in in Toronto have lines and you know, limits to how many people can be in them and that, and that kind of thing. And, and it's nice to be able to, you know, feel the the watch buzz and glance down and go like, no, that doesn't actually require, that's a <laughs> Slack message to 50 people, not just to me or yeah. or an email that doesn't require a reply. And it, it's a little bit like easier way of processing the data. That said, Watches of Wonders is now, you know, fully wrapped and we're, we're even out of the residual pace of that. And this is our depth charge episode. So I wanted to pick a kind of depth charge appropriate watch. So I, I went with my, uh, my, you know, relatively newly delivered, uh, Synchron military. I got the uh, PVD one on a nice gray NATO. Oh, that's a good choice. Oh, on gray. Yeah. yeah I love nice. it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it yeah. a lot. Have you found that the loom on that one? Um, it's a little confusing when you, you know, when you go from watch to watch, the loom patterns are always so different. And that one has that weird shaped hour hand that I almost yeah, can't really get does. used to because it's just so square. It almost blends in with the other weird markings on that one I found. Yeah, definitely. It can take a minute. The nice thing is, is, you know, being with that kind of Doxa inspiration, that minute hand is, you'll never lose that. Yeah. But I do agree that the hour hand isn't the same as an hour hand on almost any other watch. Even on a, on a Doxa, you have that thinner, it's essentially like a micro version of the minute hand Yeah. with that handset. But this one's funky. I love the color. I'm really impressed by the the PVD and the fit and finish for the price point. You know, the pre-order was under a thousand dollars and the right. bezel's really good and loomed and the crown is great. And the, the PVD is this nice kind of thick, uh, you know, kind of semi-polished with uh, with a um, a brushing in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not exactly what I expect from a PVD dive watch from a micro brand. Yeah, but it, it feels good. It wears really well. I like that it wears. It feels a bit big. It's not. It's not the thin case Doxa mm-hmm. uh, case shape. Yeah, it has this sort of thicker thicker vibe to it. And and at first I was kind of like, oh. I would have liked the thin case and then I put it on for a day and I actually really like it the way it is. It just suits, it, it sits nicely and, yeah, and it, and it yeah. still has that like chunky seventies funkiness to it. Yeah. There's so much good about that watch. I think, you know, the dial of course is so funky and fun to look at, but then I, the bezel does it for me. For one thing, it's a countdown bezel, which you don't get much, but the, the, those loopy kind of numerals and then the, the loomed numerals when you turn off the lights and uh, just has, it looks like an old Bakelite you know, bezel from yeah. old Seamaster or something. I just think, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a wonderful watch. And it, it was kind of like one of those storms that blew up. Everybody kind of, there was a big hubbub about it. A bunch of people bought it. And then it's kind of like in the rear view mirror now, it's like driving past a tornado or something. And like, it's the dust is kind of settled and now people are just enjoying the watch, which is really cool. It's, it's a funny thing. And, and you wrote a really great piece on, um, 
on your Substack recently about how the, the context with which you're interfacing with watches is changing, and it actually means that you're enjoying watches more rather than maybe seeing them just as work. Yeah, and uh, and and I like that that position, and and I followed some of the drama when this watch came out because for those who don't know that this military design is is based essentially as a direct homage to a, a Doxer from the '70s, which was made while Synchron owned Doxer, so it's this weird triangle of. <laughs> of brands yeah. and designs and, and, and the military was made in an exceedingly small quantity. I think it's the kind of idealized watch for an homage because it would only be interesting to people who really like the military. Yeah. It's not like you're, I'm not pulling the wool over somebody's eyes, them thinking I have a real military. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, so I, I dig the watch. I think it's, it's, it's nicely made. Um, but yeah, I would say that as much as I, I like the passion that leads people to be this into watches, um, we are we are talking about uh, you know micro brand dive watches made in very short supply. I mean the stakes are super low, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, right. Uh, yeah. And yeah. and and yeah. So that's that's good. But uh, I've been I've certainly been enjoying it. I think it's going to make like a great uh, summer watch along this really along the same speed as that um, Seiko from last year. I plan to wear it all summer and see how it takes a, a good uh, a good bit of abuse and some you know jumps off the dock and the rest of it. Yeah. How about yeah. you? Yeah, I kind of went synchron Rick Murray angle uh, this week too. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's no no stranger to my wrist. I'm wearing the Aquastar Deep Star um, that I've had on my wrist six days out of seven for you know coming up on a year. Um, I, I just think to me, it's it, I've almost become a one watch person. I wear it almost every day. It's just it's very eye pleasing. I've got the gray dial. It's works well on almost any strap and. Uh, it's funky. I like the reverse panda. I like the the fact that it's a dive watch, but it doesn't necessarily look like one. And I moved it back to the the, the gray tropic strap that it came on because I, I, you know, it's it's been chilly this week, but we've had we've already been in the seventies and eighties here, and I kind of thought, oh, it's kind of coming around to kayaking and biking and hiking season. It'd be kind of good to get it back on rubber, and and uh, so that's where it's sitting. So. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Great yeah. watch. I, you know, I'm a huge, huge fan of mine. I love it on a NATO. It's really good on just a simple, like a really simple shell leather. Yeah. Um, I, I think I'll probably do some summer with that on a rubber NATO. I've got, you know, the 22 millimeter oh, CD328, yeah. uh, also super comfy. It's not a watch that needs, uh, any additional bulk on the back. Right. Uh, so if you do the NATO go single pass, so they, cause it is kind of a, a chunky thing to begin with, which is fine. Yeah. I think that that's how it's meant to be worn. Yeah, um, but I, you know, they wear in many ways like a BB forty one Chrono or something like that. So sure, uh, yeah. great choices, and I think both really fit today's theme. And uh, and if you like, we can we can kind of dive right in. Yeah, let's do it. So for anybody who's been listening to the show for almost any length of time, but certainly say the last what twenty episodes, maybe Jason has been working pretty tirelessly on a, a book called Death Charge. It's like a modern take on the classic thriller novel. And uh, Jason, I'd love to get into it. Like I said, I have a lot of questions. My um, my copies from the pre-order should arrive maybe while we're recording this. Oh, good. Um, which I'm, I'm really excited about. That'll, that'll be what I, what I do this evening, certainly. Yeah. L- let's start with a really simple elevator pitch. What's the plot? How would you get somebody kind of dialed into it? You know, the thriller genre is one that, that I've just grown to love over about the past 10 to 20 years. Uh, you know, when I was in college, I studied English literature and it was all kind of high-minded Hemingway and Shakespeare and reading for metaphors and that sort of thing. And, and I think, you know, once you dip into the world of Clive Cussler and Ian Fleming and Alistair MacLean, you, you, you get into this, this rich vein of, of what's, what's good writing with a lot of detail and, and fast paced plots. Um, 
but without, you know, a lot of the kind of the weight that comes from having to read things with, with a, a big author's name behind it or, or, you know, high literature with a capital L. And, and that's kind of what I was going for. And, you know, they usually say that fiction has some autobiographical elements to it. And, and in this case, <clears throat> I wouldn't say it's autobiographical, but I, it is drawn from my own uh, travels and interests. Um, and those will be recognizable to anybody that reads it. But in essence, the story is about uh, an American uh, maritime archaeologist or underwater archaeologist who finds himself uh, working in Sri Lanka. So, you know, halfway around the world from his home um, with an old college friend of his. And there's a, a horrible tragedy um, and uh, and his friend dies. And so he, he's kind of caught up in you know, how did this happen? And he's in a, he's in a foreign land with, you know, a lot of unfamiliar elements to it. And, and there's a good amount of underwater action and exploration. Um, and of course you have to have a, you know, a, a psychopathic sort of villain. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> in this yeah, yeah. case, I, there's, there, there's kind of a double layer to that. There, there are two people, but also I incorporated um, what I think is a very interesting element of uh, World War II history here. So I, I kind of took a took a page from Clive Cussler's, uh, you know, manual on how to write a thriller. And and I had a couple of flashback chapters where we look at um, an, a certain obscure element of World War II British history um, that ties in with the modern day plot. So it kind of goes back and forth a little bit. Um, I, I thought it might be helpful for me to kind of just read the back cover blurb here. Um, yeah, let's so do it. I can dive into that. Julian Tusker Tusk is an American archaeologist excavating a shipwreck half a world from home when a research boat catches fire and sinks, killing an old friend. The tragedy sets in motion a dangerous quest for truth that pulls Tusker into a sinister plot spanning 75 years from World World War II Ceylon to modern-day Sri Lanka. Along the way, he matches wits with a psychopathic mercenary, discovers a long-lost ship with an explosive secret, and falls for a beautiful marine biologist who is at least as strong as he is. In the end, Tusker finds that the truth may lie at the bottom of the sea with only one way back to the surface. So that's, that's kind of the, the blurb you see, you know, when you, when you click on Amazon and you see it there. Yeah, it's, uh, there were a lot of kind of moving parts, a lot of elements here. You've got some history, you've got some culture, you've got obviously diving, um, that all comes together in this. And I think, uh, even if you're not into any one of those things, I hope the story itself is compelling enough. Uh, yeah, absolutely. No, it sounds it sounds like there's a good mix there. You know, some yeah. travel, some diving, some driving, some gear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. It's basically some TGN watches. Book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. I, I have a, I have several questions, and some of them are just needlessly curio- uh, needless curiosity on my part, and some I think are will be a little bit more uh, direct to the book. But uh, where, where to start? Oh, I guess that's where we can start. Where to start? You, you decide to write a book, and, and I think I think I've even tried to do this a couple times, although I, maybe not a book as much as a screenplay. And oh, you just, yeah. did you just sit down one day and decide to op- open a Word document and start writing? Or or did you start with a big plot outline or did you already have a character kind of in your mind and, and you built it from there? How, what, what is the, what's the first page like? I, I probably should have done what you mentioned, which is create a big plot outline. That really would have helped me. Um, but I didn't do that. I did basically sit down and open up, uh, in this case, an uh, Apple Pages document, which is basically the same thing as Word. And the funny thing is I had actually had this idea of writing a novel about 10 years ago, and I, I sat down and just literally opened the document, started writing, 
descriptive chapters, this and that. And I got about 40 pages in and I was like, where is this going? I don't even have a plot. I'm just writing. <laughs> um, so I just, I set it aside. I just sat out there on a, a Dropbox folder kind of collecting dust. And um, fortunately a bit of that book, that that first chapter of that book ends up being one of the last chapters in, in this, uh, in this book in depth charge. But in this case, when I did start this one, I had a few ideas in mind. And I think one thing that informed me was I read and heard some advice from thriller novelists, uh, successful ones who said, you know, you, you can really draw some inspiration from, you know, the newspaper or, or the news, you know, look at the, the articles on the inside of the paper and, and look for obscure little stories about things that are happening around the world that might catch your interest that you want to dig a little deeper into and fictionalize. And so I, I did that. And, you know, when, when I kicked this off, Kashani and I were down in Jamaica at uh, Goldeneye, which was Ian Fleming's old estate where he wrote all the Bond novels. And it seemed a, a fitting place to kick things off. And I just had this, this inspiration to, to set off on a novel. And, and so it was at that point, you know, sitting by the lagoon between snorkeling outings that Kashani and I were chatting about possible plot ideas and kind of brainstorming characters and who would be in the book. And it, the, the kernel of, of the plot came relatively quickly, but then boy, over 18 months, it just, it, it became somewhat difficult because I didn't have that plot outline to start tying my timeline together and the different elements of the character relationships and things like that. So at some point, you know, even after it went through edit with a, a very good editor who had some great recommendations, I literally like was throwing chapters away, killing off characters, you know, getting rid of them. Um, so very different from any other kind of writing I'd ever done. Right. And and if you look back on the process now, what were, what were some of the challenges that like you, you didn't expect? Was it trying to write in a manner that was just vastly different than writing with watches or travel or gear? Or was there a, a, a different sort of thing that came up and you thought ah, that, I, that this had never occurred to me before? I think, um, for one thing, the, the perseverance required to to sustain a story for, in this case, what, 60,000 words, 256 pages or so, and right. do that over 18 months of coming back and sitting down and picking up where I left off every day. And then going back and reading a chapter I wrote seven months earlier to edit it or change something, that was challenging. I mean, I, you know, as you are probably familiar from the kind of writing we typically do, um, whether it's a watch review, a car review, or travel report or whatever, you, at least for me, if it's a 2,000-word article for Hodinkee or Gear Patrol or wherever, I, I would sit down, start at the beginning, plow through to the end, and then maybe go back and revise once or twice after. That that was always my method. Um, but this okay. time it's like each chapter becomes two, 3000 words or more. Um, and you're piling one upon the other and have to maintain this thread throughout. And it was just was such unfamiliar territory for me to kind of have to have that discipline and that perseverance and that focus and to kind of stay in the story. Um, I got used to it, but it was, it was definitely an early challenge. Yeah, for sure. I, I can imagine that that uh, that being a thing. And then the the other thing that I I don't know if everyone would just understand is like it's not like you got a book deal to write this right. book. Yeah, right. this, this time came out of other writing time. Uh, you know, yeah. time, time that would have been earning earning time rather than more of an investment in the book and your self publishing. Um, and and we'll we'll get to you had some fantastic help along the way certainly. Uh, with various aspects, and I'm sure we can get to that. But uh, I do, yeah, I think it's it's important to add that 
if you take 18 months to write this, that is 18 months of time that you're either taking away from normal writing that's paid, you know, by the word or, or by contract yeah. or whatever, and or free time. Um, right. So it's, a, it's definitely a big lift to try and put that out when it's it when you didn't come into it as it being your day to day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned self-publishing and I think there was a crossroads at one point when I thought everybody's dream is that they submit their manuscript and a publisher says, Oh, we'd love to publish this. We'll give you $30,000 to finish the book and then we'll sell it for you. And you know, the, the landscape has changed. And I think looking at what a publisher does, um, um, and having talked to a few publishers and I actually sent an excerpt to a literary agent early on and got some great feedback from him. Um, but what a publisher does by and large is that they seek out a printer. They hook you up with an editor, a proofreader, um, a graphic designer to handle the cover design, um, look into distribution and marketing. And when I looked at all of those elements, I had already kind of put enough of that in motion that I thought, well, I'm, I'm not only an author, but at this point I'm, I'm kind of being a publisher anyway, because I've already looked into printing locally and, and distribution through Amazon. And I have a graphic designer signed up to, to work on the cover design and the typesetting. And I know a good editor and I've got a pretty good reach on social media and other avenues for, for marketing the book. So I just decided at that point, this is the path I'm going to take. And, you know, now that we're nearing the launch, well, as of today, um, officially, that aspect of it has become as full-time a job, if not more arduous and and time-consuming than the writing itself, which I'm not complaining about. I think it's been wonderful and, and a good learning experience, but I had no idea. Um, but you know, yeah. you, you can, you can always learn to do something new, whether it's wiring lights on a Jeep or writing a novel or, yeah, true or enough. you know, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And did you find that in the process of learning to do all of this, it's going to, it's, it's maybe changed the way that your approach, you, you might approach normal work writing. Uh, like does, a, after doing a whole book, does having a short term assignment to turn out 2,500 words feel kind of, uh, uh, like a lighter lift than it might've previously? I actually have found that as I was writing other stuff while working on the novel, it was such a different kind of part of the brain to write nonfiction. Um, it almost made it easier, not because it's less words, but, mm -hmm. you know, inventing something out of thin air with a character who's make believe and creating dialogue, et cetera, is there's so much more kind of mental space that doesn't even require typing or, you know, hands on the keyboard as it does just like, Un, you know, unlocking this puzzle in, in your brain. And I think nonfiction almost became this refreshing, like, okay, I can look at this watch on my wrist and like write about it. And it was like kind of this wonderful relief, um, sort of a, right. a different type of different muscles being used, I guess. Okay. And then uh, you'd mentioned, you know, the, the fiction versus nonfiction thing in, in my very limited experience, um, all of it being terrible in terms of the output in attempting fiction. Yeah. I always found the dialogue to be, impressively difficult and, and it's not so much that it's it's super hard to make a character sound cool or or cliche or whatever you're trying to find mm -hmm. um but it, i do think it's really difficult to have an interesting character that occasionally has really fantastic dialogue that also happens to be a normal human being that has normal dialogue yeah you know like we we know the 10 famous lines from james bond but that's he only says those once a movie and there's a lot of dialogue <laughs> in all of those right and it's the same in a movie in in a book right and or a screenplay or whatever, I, you know, dialogue seems to me, especially when you don't write any dialogue when you're writing about watches or anything yeah. really other than, than these sorts of scenarios. Yeah. Um, 
how did did you find that to be uh, uh, an, an unpressed like a, a new challenge when it when it came to uh, putting the story together? Very much so. I, it was writing dialogue was probably my biggest challenge. My the biggest sort of I wouldn't call it a weakness, but blind spot for me. I I just I had never done it before, um, other than my early feeble attempt at writing a novel. And and I think it's so important. It's really what separates good fiction from from just sort of average or from even from nonfiction is you have to you know show it's that show versus tell. You have to show your reader what's going on or or show your reader. Um, what this character is like through dialogue rather than just description. Description was always my fallback. It was always the, what I always considered my strength as good descriptive writing is to be able to describe what a shipwreck looks like or you know how a watch feels on the wrist or how it even makes me feel mm-hmm. in a very first-person way. But to suddenly have two characters where it's like, okay, I remember my editor, Chris Wright, who did such a wonderful job on this book, you know, telling me in feedback saying, you know, okay, I'm not getting the sense of the relationship between these two characters. Like you need to insert more dialogue that shows me how they relate to each other and shows me the warmth and their history together and why they're good friends and why this would be so devastating right. if one of them dies through just early conversation. And he's like, it doesn't have to be really overly special or, or profound. It just needs to be genuine. How, and he even one of his, his tips was, how, how do you feel? What does it look like when, um, how would you feel if so-and-so died? Or what, what do you feel if, you know, the, the, your, your pressure gauge shows that you're almost out of air or whatever, you know, like wh- describe that or, you know, speak that out. And, and that was, that was really helpful. So hopefully I, hopefully I nailed it. There's certainly room for improvement. And I think some characters in the book lend themselves better to, to good dialogue than others. So we'll, we'll see. I can't wait for, for feedback and see what people think. Yeah, and then I, I think that's fair, and and I, it's definitely got to be something that just you 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 try and you take a pass at it, and you refine it, and you refine it, and someone tells you it sounds very unrealistic, and you refine it again. Yeah, um, you know, it, it, it. I think the temptation would be to have everybody all the, especially in a thriller, especially in in, in something like this, would just the temptation would just be to have everyone speak like it's a uh, the third act of a Tarantino film. <laughs> uh, you know, a, a, a lot of exposing, uh, uh, or a lot of expounding, a lot of you know several syllable words, a lot of uh, fun pronunciations, a lot of, uh, chewing the scenery. And, and I don't, uh, you know, I think, I think that would be, that would be why I probably shouldn't be assigned to write a book at any point. <laughs> uh, the, the, the other thing that comes to my mind is, uh, is, you know, dealing with a thriller, your character, you know, will be in Cussler or, or Bond style capers and, and scenarios, I assume. And, in doing that, did you find that there were avenues of your experience that meant that you didn't really have the background to inform some of these things? You know, if if he's going and um, jumping into his Land Rover to to drive across some off road trail to then record a a, a really <laughs> fantastic podcast with a devilishly handsome co host, um, I feel like well, you could write that super well. But wh- how did you approach things that maybe you didn't know? You know, there's there's some commercial diving in here, which obviously you do a lot of diving, but you're not a commercial diver. Yeah. And, and I'm assuming there's some gunplay, maybe, maybe some other stuff. How, how did you approach trying to make that feel appropriate and, um, and, and accurate? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a challenge, uh, on a couple of levels for one thing, even geography was, was an early challenge. I, you know, I had gotten, I had listened to some advice from some well-known authors, um, through that masterclass program. There are a few thriller writers that have masterclass uh, sessions where they teach you how to write a thriller. And I watched a few of those and some were better than others, but 
Um, one thing they all kind of say is go to the locations if you can that you're writing about and pace out, you know, how long it takes to run across that town square or, you know, drive from A to B so that it seems realistic in the book. Well, you know, this book is set in, to a certain degree, London, a little bit in Scotland. There's some in, even in Portugal and then, you know, Michigan and, and Sri Lanka. And some places I'd been, some places I hadn't, uh, and I couldn't travel. I mean, that was my big plan for last year was to f- go to, we were going to go to the UK for vacation and I was going to do some research and then go to Sri Lanka and couldn't do that because of the pandemic. And so I had to resort a lot to both, you know, Google maps, uh, and street view and that sort of thing in many cases, but also leaning on subject matter experts, people that, uh, lived in these places and had done some of these things that are in the book. Like you mentioned the, the saturation diving that I talk about. And it's, uh, uh, that is a very daunting subject. It's a very technical, very specific type of work and type of diving that I'm not as familiar with other than writing about helium escape valves for Hodinkee or for a watch review. Um, so I leaned on a couple of subject matter experts in that case, one of whom was, uh, Paul Scurfield, our buddy from one of our earlier episodes who owns Mm -hmm. the Scurf watch company and is an active, a professional diver uh, out of the UK. And Paul reviewed a, a few chapters early on in the writing of the book and gave me some tremendous feedback about what, what makes sense, what works, what sounds utter, utterly absurd, what something might look like. Um, and then later on, after I actually completed the book and I had it with my editor, I sent a whole draft of it to another friend of mine, Jason Vanderskiff, who used to own a, a company that provided diving equipment to the offshore industry and, and was a commercial diver himself back in the day. And he reviewed it and gave me some good feedback and some images to look at and tips and that sort of thing. And, um, there's a bit of, uh, sort of geopolitical religious political conflict in the book that, that, you know, involved certain, uh, ethnic and, and religious groups in Sri Lanka that, you know, having been there, I know a little bit about, but I certainly wasn't an expert. So I, pinged another friend of mine, uh, Milo, uh, Kumaratunga, and he, he looked at it as well and gave me some feedback. And, and so, you know, reaching out to some of these people was just tremendously helpful. And, you know, I shout them out in, in the acknowledgements of the book at the back, but, uh, you know, I just can't thank them enough, uh, for the help. I think, you know, subject matter experts are just, um, so valuable that and a good editor, um, is, is just something I would never skip. Yeah, with this sort of a thing, right? With this, with uh, with a book of this type, it really you can take something of a village. Uh, yeah. Obviously, you're the you're the mayor here, but you had to bring all those people kind of into one place and make sure the timelines worked out on and and getting the feedback and the stuff. And that's that's always something that I I, I mean I find that can be like a challenge writing a four thousand word reference points on a a watch. Yeah, it's just just getting the people to fill in the blanks in the conventional wisdom. Right. You know, everybody knows when you um you know when you when you're underwater, you need an air supply. And, and if you're in commercial diving, then maybe it's a hard hat. And there's like, there's some entry level stuff that, that is pretty easy to cover. Yeah. But as soon as you want to take it one layer further or, or to the extent where those layers add a lot of interest, the detail adds specificity, which adds interest. Right. It, I, I think it's, it's impressive that you're able to, uh, to pull those folks together and, and, and get that kind of going. Um, I, I want to get to um, to uh, our our reading. We have an excerpt of the book coming up, which, I, which is going to be super fun. But before we get to that, I think to kind of close out this little Q and A, I almost guarantee that if you consider the size of the audience, there's a few other people who either have a book on their hard drive, <laughs> yeah, eighty percent done, and needs the editor and the the fact checker and the rest of it, 
or there's people who have the first page. My guess is there's dozens. Yeah. Who, yeah. who started the page, named the book, named the first character, um, maybe, maybe even have a little bit of a plot. How, how, do you, how do you tell people to get from that to some sort of a daily practice that will bring the book to a close at some point? Yeah. I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to be able to tell people to, you know, a certain discipline to follow. Um, I, I can't help as much with that because I, I I'm such a bad, I'm so bad <laughs> at self-discipline. Like, you know, I read about some of these authors that every morning at four o'clock I would get up before breakfast and I would write for three hours. Then I would go to work and I would do this. I, that's not me. But what I can say is, um, what helped me was to treat each chapter as a scene. So whether, you know, you're thinking about it in terms of a stage play or a movie or whatever, with a thriller, especially, I don't know about other types of fiction, but with a thriller, the object is to keep the pace fast and to keep the the reader wanting to move from one chapter to the next. So they don't want to go to sleep at night. They don't want to turn off the light at two o'clock and set the book down and say, I'll come back to it tomorrow. You want them to want to turn the page and at least read the first sentence of the next chapter. So they know what happens. Uh Um, So in that way, each chapter becomes a scene and the curtain goes down at the end of that chapter and the person has done the dive, uh, you know, shot the villain, you know, maybe they're trapped in this cave or something. And, you want to see how that how it ends, but that chapter has to be a scene. I also think the thing that I didn't do until a little bit too late in this was to do that plot outline. I think it would be really helpful to do a rough timeline, like literally draw out a timeline on a big sheet of paper and mm-hmm. put your markers of what happens when so that then you can relate back to that as you're writing. And maybe then you can slot in those different scenes along that timeline and pretty soon it all kind of gels and comes together. I mentioned the masterclass. If I'm not pitching for masterclass, I think some of them are not great. But the one that was really helpful was was Dan Brown's masterclass on writing a thriller. And Dan Brown, who wrote Da Vinci Code, is not a favorite author of mine. I've never read anything by him, actually. But he he was a teacher before he became a best-selling author. And so he's very good at it. And he he had some really good practical advice that that I found very helpful. And then the last thing I would say is, and this is not anything new that I'm coming up with here, but never skip uh, the edit. Um, you know, I had Chris Wright, former Gear Patrol guy, um, edit this for me. And, you know, it took him a month and, you know, I paid him for it and, and he he did a just a fantastic job. I mean, I, I, I owe so much uh, of the quality of the book to, to Chris's work and, and it just makes such a big difference. So uh, if you can... Um, that's one thing not to skip is, is editing. So, all right. Yeah. So good resource there with the, with the masterclass yeah. and, uh, and to find a good editor and maybe Chris is available for your book. Yeah. Too. I'm yeah. sure. Uh, I'm sure he'd at least entertain. Uh, he's a very, very talented guy Yeah, uh, with a, a great background in this to, uh, to inform a book such as this. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, all right. I think it's time for that excerpt, which I'm pretty pumped about and, and any setup needed for this. Yeah, a little bit. So this comes from I feel like a talk show host. You want to tell us about the clip coming up? Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I feel like a celebrity now. <laughs> so this is an excerpt. It's not a full chapter, but it's from the chapter in the book called the Taprobane. And the Taprobane uh, is the name of a research vessel that uh, belongs to the Ministry of Culture, History and Archaeology, uh, a fictional Sri Lankan agency um, for which one of my main characters named Upali Karuna uh, works and uh, Upali is a friend of the protagonist of the story, and Upali is another underwater archaeologist, um, and he is set off, setting out on the Taprobane, on this research vessel, with a small crew, and they're going out to find what they think is a new shipwreck off the east coast of Sri Lanka based on um, 
reports from a fisherman who had snagged his nets on something underwater. So they're going to go out and and drop a, a sonar side scan sonar device uh, over the side and see if they can find this shipwreck. And and what they find is um, is not what they expect. I'll kind of leave it there. You can listen. All right, let's get into it. Shipwreck hunting has a romantic sound to it, largely thanks to tales of Caribbean treasure hunts and Clive Cussler novels. But in reality, it is stupefyingly boring. The first step is to identify anomalies on the ocean floor, those features that don't appear to be naturally occurring objects such as rocks, coral heads, or schools of fish. This is done by dragging a side-scan sonar device behind the boat in a systematic pattern, a process known as mowing the lawn and is just about as exciting as walking up and down a suburban backyard. The sonar device, known as a towfish, is shaped like a torpedo with a cylindrical body and stabilizing fins at its back end. As it moves through the water, the towfish sends audio pulses into the depths, which bounce back off the seabed. This paints a sort of electronic picture of the terrain on a laptop screen on the boat. Man-made objects, usually shipwrecks or pieces of debris, are recognizable by their more geometric shapes on the screen. Right angles and straight lines rarely occur in nature. These anomalies are marked with GPS coordinates to be investigated more thoroughly later with the ROV. A day spent mowing the lawn under the tropical sun, watching a computer monitor for anomalies is only tolerable, with the promise of actually finding something, which rarely happens. A few weeks earlier, a fisherman had snagged his line on what he assumed was a rock ledge and pulled up a faded orange life ring with some indistinguishable writing on it. A shipwreck? That would explain the good fishing. Fish tended to congregate around wrecks for their relative shelter on barren seafloors. But there were no known wrecks in this area. Word got back through the fish market gossip on up to a local politician who alerted the naval base in Trincomalee. The Navy didn't have time to go on wreck hunts, so it passed the message on to the offices of MOCA, the Ministry of Culture, History, and Archaeology, in Colombo. And that's how Upali Karuna found himself slowly motoring up the coast on the Taprobane on this cool morning. After an hour and a half of mowing the lawn, the MOCA team decided to investigate a promising anomaly from the sonar scans, a long shadow on the slope of a deep ocean trench that slashes in from the continental shelf towards Batakaloa. Here, the sea deepens from 150 feet to over 300 quickly, and then drops over a precipice into 2,000 feet of dark water. We're here, Ranjith said, cutting the engine. Drop anchor now. Deepa, the intern, threw the anchor off the bow and stepped aside as the chain and heavy rope unspooled into the water. On the transom, the sonar man, Suresh, squatted over the ROV, a small robot about the size of an office copy machine. Tethered to the boat by a long, thick umbilical for power and controls, and could drop into the depths, illuminate the darkness with a quiver of powerful lights, and capture what it saw with a high-definition camera. Despite his rather nautical job at Mocha, Suresh was not much for boats, and had never learned to swim. But he was an expert in underwater electronics like the ROV, having interned at Woods Hole in America and working on the RV Petrel when it had discovered several important World War II wrecks in the Pacific a few years earlier. She's ready to splash, Suresh said, giving one last tug on the cable connection as if to prove his point. He and Upali lifted the robot by its bottom skids and shuffled to the edge of the transom. Bon voyage, little friend, 
Suresh said as it splashed into the water and disappeared below the surface. Upali and Suresh settled in at the computer monitor inside the forward cabin. The screen showed a direct feed from the camera on the front of the ROV as it descended through 300 feet of ocean. Darkness, with the occasional cloud of drifting particulate reflected in the craft's 10,000 lumen floodlights. Deepa hovered over their shoulders. This was her first field work as a MOCA intern, and she was excited at the prospect of actually finding something. Ranjith sat on the transom, smoking. We should have hit bottom by now, eh? Upali said. The ROV's depth gauge showed 357 feet. Well, according to the charts, we're literally on the edge of the drop-off, so if we overshot by even a few feet, we'd be over the side in very deep water, Suresh said. Let me alter the heading a bit and bring her back up a ways. He pulled on the joystick delicately with his fingertips. The depth reading changed, despite the continuous blackness on screen. 342, 337. Whoa, what's that? Deepa's finger darted out, poking the monitor. They all leaned in. The video feed clearly showed a twisted procession of railing stanchions atop a coral-encrusted slab of steel. The ROV had come up almost beneath it. Suresh cursed and quickly maneuvered to avoid entangling the umbilical cable. Must be the bow, Upali thought. Follow that railing, Upali said. To the right, must be aft. Suresh didn't answer, but the view on the monitor with its wide-angle lens zoomed along the upper hull of the ship, encrusted with hard and soft corals and the occasional waving sea fan. Then... Something unmistakable. A cannon. We've got ourselves a warship. Polly leaned back and smiled. I'd bet a round of beers that this is the vampire. We got very lucky, said Suresh, not taking his eyes from the screen. She's literally hanging over a cliff. A few more feet to the north, and this wreck would be in 2,000 feet of water. A little beyond your diving depth, eh, Machan? Upali elbowed him in the ribs and laughed. For the next several hours, they scoured the wreck with the ROV, methodically working from forward to aft, breaking for lunch and later some tea. By late afternoon, they still hadn't found any evidence that positively identified this ship as the vampire, but Upali was sure that it was. The old war records and British admiralty charts showed no other shipwrecks in this area, and judging from its size and armaments, it was clearly a destroyer. To know for sure, Upali would compare the footage from the ROV to the photos and engineering drawings he had of the vampire back at the Deep Blue. He was ready to call it a day. They'd be back out tomorrow with more definitive surveying goals. Upali pulled out his phone and dashed off a cryptic message. Think we've found Dracula. He smiled. Tusker would be so jealous. Hey, come look at this, Suresh called from the monitor. Upali yawned and came back inside. There's a perfectly rectangular hole in the hull here. There's no sea life growing around it either. Almost looks fresh. There, on the monitor, was a wide maw into the ship's hold, outlined in a black, jagged rectangle. It couldn't be from a torpedo or explosion of any kind. Maybe a hatch that came free when she sank? Suresh mused. No, not there. That's below the waterline. I've never seen anything like that, Upali replied. Can you get inside there safely? Shouldn't be too hard, Suresh said, tweaking the joystick. The ROV responded. That hole is big enough for a car to drive through. Inside was a jumble of debris covered in seven decades of silt, unrecognizable. Upali gasped aloud. What a treasure trove for an archaeologist, a time capsule unseen since World War II. Suddenly, a bright object appeared on the monitor. So out of place, it caused the two men to jump. It was yellow, spherical, and reflected back the white light of the ROV lamps. As Suresh moved the craft in closer, Upali leaned in and squinted. He could make out the writing. He mouthed the words, Kirby Morgan. It's a dive helmet, he shouted. 
recognizing the famous maker of commercial diving gear. This was a saturation diver's helmet, no question, and not the kind used for salvaging wrecks long ago. No, this was the kind of helmet seen on modern commercial divers, welding oil pipeline and laying cable in the North Sea, the Gulf of Mexico, or Batacaloa Harbor. Upali's skin went cold. The depth charge, that explained the fresh hole in the hull. The doused running lights, the nighttime anchorage. Were they cutting up the vampire for her higher carbon steel, which would fetch millions on the market? But that sort of clandestine poaching was typically done by ill-outfitted amateurs in shallower waters. Not a commercial diving company in over 300 feet of water. He'd have to report this to the police. No, the Sri Lankan Navy. All right, shut her down, he said. Let's get back. We may have gotten into something a little deeper than our old shipwreck. All right, so there you have it, an excerpt from one of the chapters of Depth Charge. Also, a fun little Easter egg that has come out of the the creation of this story, and we'll get into it in just a moment, is the the, the book has a score. Jason, how did you end up <laughs> scoring a book? Yeah, it, seem, it seems a little bit like putting the cart before the horse to... Uh to have a score, but you know, I've got this, uh, this great friend locally here. I met him through the, the watch community many years ago and he's, um, uh, he's a really talented composer and music producer. Um, his name is Oren Chan and Oren is, is, uh, he kind of helped put together a local band called Lady Lark here. And, and a few years ago, Kashani had shot, um, some cover art for one of their EPs and, and we kind of grew closer with Oren and, He's been following my progress for, for a while now. And when he saw a, a bit of an excerpt from Depth Charge or a bit of an explanation and the synopsis and, and some of the cover art, he was inspired. And he said he got up one day and in, in like an hour, he had crafted this like three or four minute long theme song for Depth Charge without even having read it. And it really nails it. Um, it, it has that bit of a throwback thriller sound to it. Could be from a Bond film or... Um, you know, any late, sort of late 60s, 70s, late Hitchcock, something along those lines. I love it. I love it. So and, cool. and it works really well. And so, you know, he, he sent me over this, this full length audio file and then a bunch of shorter clips to be used for, for this and that. And it, it just felt, you know, it's funny. One thing I, I remember hearing was that one thing that can really inspire you, and this is another tip, I guess, for, for would be authors is, um, if you can, uh, and you you can craft a, a bit of a crude cover for your book with your name and the title and maybe a bit of art. Wrap it around a book and set it on your desk with your name on it and the title of the book. And it, it makes it feel real, you know. And and having the score was kind of similar. It was it was something that I would listen to occasionally while I was I was editing the book, and it was kind of inspiring. It was like okay, I can kind of get into this, and and you can then your mind starts to bubble up into, you know delusions of grandeur or, or hopes and dreams of, you know, oh, there could be a movie or let's use this for the audiobook or let's, you know, whatever. And, and that was the, kind of the case with the score. Um, so it, it's fun. And, and we'll, you know, we played some here on the show. And I think, you know, I've got a link on the depthchargenovel.com website where you can listen to the whole score on its own page there. But uh, yeah, that was fun. And then uh, along those lines, you know, kind of having this cover with your name on it, um, the, the guy who helped me design the cover of the book and, and did all the typesetting, Paul Andrews, he, he, he mocked up a cover of the book, uh, that actually two different covers of the book. One that said, uh, the New York times bestseller across the top. And then he did another version that said, um, soon to be a major motion picture. 
And I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you print that out, you put it on your desk or you frame it or you just you look at it occasionally. And it's like, yeah, you know, you start to dream a little bit. It makes you feel a little more authorly um, to, to see your name on that, even though you're self-publishing a book at your dining room table, you know. Well, soon soon to be a blockbuster podcast. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah. Episode yeah. 143. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, though. And and you also, you went beyond. It wasn't just the, the I love how many people kind of came together to make this all kind of come together we, with the score and the art and, and then, yeah. of course, all the background work and the editing. Yeah. And you're nearly two years into it. Um, did you make anything else to go alongside it? Because I, I saw some stuff in the, in the kind of interim yeah. that you were excited about, and I'm not sure if, it, if it's going to be something you're releasing or talking about. Yeah, so um, you know, there there's a fictional dive resort in the book called the Deep Blue, and uh, I I've had this vision in my mind of you know what would what would you buy, what would you get from that place? You know, a lot of these dive resorts all over the world, you know, you buy a cheap T-shirt there with their logo on it that you wear back home and remember the trip. Paul Andrews, who who designed the cover, did such a great job on that and, and did the typesetting for me. You know, we we were talking and and he mocked up a few logos one of which was for the deep blue and i made just a handful of t-shirts just for fun uh in in a great kind of light blue colorway that feels very tropical and uh so i i did a couple of t-shirts i did some stickers with that logo and and then we also did the same thing for um the 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 bad guys ship in the book which is called the, the dive support vessel depth charge or the dsv depth charge and so he he created a logo for the depth charge, which I think is just awesome. It's kind of this two color logo with a sort of a stylized pitchfork or trident on it, and you could envision that on the back of the the crew, you know, the, the bad guys, the henchman's t shirt or something, or his shirt that he wears on deck. And so we did t shirts and we did some stickers. I'm not sure that you know t shirts will ultimately be for sale. I think I've heard people say I'd love to get one, but I kind of that cart before the horse thing. I want to make sure the book gets out there and is well received before I start flooding the market with, with t-shirts. But, uh, uh, you know, you talk about, you talk about Easter eggs and I think as people are getting those pre-ordered signed copies, I am including, uh, two stickers with each signed copy. So if you, if you order the signed copies, th- those won't be available with the, uh, with the non-signed copies that you get from Amazon and other places. But, uh, yeah. So if you, if you want the stickers, you got to buy the signed copy. That's, that's what I'm that's super that's fun. I also, you know, the 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 cover design is fascinating because when I first saw it, and really up until you told me what it actually is as of yesterday, I saw it as a vertical relief of like a wall dive. Yeah, yeah. It, right, because there's a diver there up in the corner and there's kind of a, a reticle, which I figured is maybe where they were diving for mm-hmm. or a reference to a map. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then uh, fill us in on what it actually is because it's, it's cooler than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the cover is, uh, it's actually the east coast of Sri Lanka. So it's the coastline with all of its little bays and inlets and promontories and things like that that are on the east coast of Sri Lanka. And then as, as the cover wraps around to the back, because Sri Lanka is an island, um, the back cover is the west coast, um, where I've got the, the back cover blurb. And so the, the island actually wraps around the book. Um, but like you said, it, it looks like a wall dive that kind of gets darker as it gets deeper with sort of an X marks the spot for a certain, certain element of the plot that uh, is fairly key to the story. So it'd be, uh, it'd be great to see that kind of translated into a, a period correct movie thriller poster. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if you hit a certain sales goal, right. You could initiate yeah. the creation of a, of, of a nice piece of wall art and that, that'd be, that'd also be fun to have signed as well. I think. Oh, I think it'd be awesome. Um, I'd love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Super fun. Well, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's, that kind of answers a lot of my questions, except for kind of the glaring one. <laughs> um, w- if, if somebody wants the book, what are their options? Cause they have, they, as of what today or tomorrow, they have several. Yeah. So, um, this episode has gone live on Thursday, the 22nd. And as of today, the, the full pre-order for signed copies is now open on depthchargenovel.com slash shop. So if you go to that link, you can order a signed copy um, which I will be shipping from here in Minneapolis after I sign it with the two stickers um, to your home anywhere in the world via FedEx. I've got negotiated rates with FedEx, but I will warn you that the uh, the especially the international shipping uh, is a bit expensive when it comes to um, to sending off the books. But if if you want a signed copy, that's how to get it. And um, fortunately, there are alternatives for people that don't want to spend that much, um, and that would be to buy it via Amazon. And I noticed it's now up on barnesandnoble.com and I think Google books as well for pre-order. So the awesome the book officially will be shipped and officially kind of available and published on the 29th, but it's open to be pre-ordered as of today on depthchargenovel.com slash shop, or you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or on uh, Google books. All the links in the show notes. All the links will be in the show notes. And yeah, uh, if the Kindle version is not live uh, as of next week, which it should be, um, there will be very soon. So there will be an ebook version of it as well, and hopefully an audiobook in the future. And 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 what are we looking at? Maybe a hundred and fifty bucks for a signed copy, hundred bucks <laughs> for the paperback. Uh, what, what? How much? All right, so uh, we're looking at fourteen ninety nine for signed okay. copy or unsigned. So wherever you're buying it, it's going to be fourteen ninety nine. If you get the signed copy. Um, you get it from me and you got to pay shipping, but if you get it from Amazon or Barnes and Noble, um, whatever they charge for, for getting it to you, but it won't be signed. So, um, and then the Kindle version is going to come in right at, uh, I'm going to go three ninety nine for that. Um, Oh, for, killer. For the Kindle, Good value. Kindle if you version. got a Kindle. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who or like just to want to read on your phone, consume books uh, electronically, that's the way that's going to go. So yeah. When I was, when I used to spend more time on the New York subway, I really enjoyed having the the app on my phone. I could read a because I, I, I think the Kindle's a fine device. It's one of those devices I forget to keep charged. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I do, I do love the idea. And then you know, there's no paper, there's no waiting for the shipping, right, etc. And and if you want, especially if it's a book like I, I kept uh, Shadow Divers, I kept uh, Iger Dreams. Um, another one I love, especially for its detail, uh, Black Hawk Down. Oh yeah. Um, I had a couple of these just on my phone that I could, I could read a l- little bits of, uh, you know, when you had 30 minutes where the, the phone wasn't even going to be online, you know, oh, yeah. trying to go into the water or something like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's awesome for four bucks too. Yeah. Dang. Right. Yeah. Yep. I don't think you're charging quite enough. I liked my price structure. Seemed really fair. <laughs> 150. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 After it becomes a major motion picture. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. We, we, yeah. The, the stickers, those little stickers, the, the New York yeah. times one, the bestseller, the, the yeah. Oprah's book club, which this will certainly get, that's a foregone conclusion. Oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I've been campaigning for years where I'm Oprah <laughs> and I are tight. Um, but yeah, so the, I, I think this is awesome. That's how you can get the book. Everything will be in the show notes. And obviously, uh, Jason, if anything were to change, is the best uh, news source your personal Instagram or the depth charge Instagram or either? You could go to either. I mean, mine has a bigger following. I'm more active on it. So at Jason Heaton, um, but you can certainly go to uh, at depth charge underscore novel on Instagram and find find uh, info and kind of fun photos throughout the launch uh, there as well. But uh, stay tuned to, to my Instagram. And then one more thing is uh, a week from today, actually, on the um, on the 29th. At 4 p.m. Central Time, 
Um, I'm hosting a little Instagram live, kind of a 30 minute little launch event to kind of chat more about the book, kind of similar to what we're doing here, but it's going to be with our friend, Mike Pearson is going to help hey. uh, kind of moderate some questions and, uh, talk a little bit about the launch of the book. Uh, so please tune in for that. That'll be 4 PM next Thursday, the 29th on the official kind of publication date. That's awesome. One of the all time, uh, best hype men. Exactly. I mean, Mike's so great. I'm, I'm so excited. Yeah, Mike's to do this the best for sure. Yeah. That's, that'll be great. I'll, I'll definitely be in the audience and I hope everyone listening now, yeah. uh, that's what five ET Yep, or five Eastern time, central. four central. Mike and I are both central, so we're we're going to bias towards the central time. But yeah, definitely, I yes. think it's. Uh, I'm not sure what that is GMT, but Google will help you with that. Yeah, I don't know if it's five, then it's eleven. Yeah, or maybe ten. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should know. I don't know. How about some final notes? Yeah, let's do it. I can jump in first. I, mine is actually another book. Uh, here's a book to get you through until you buy Depth Charge and read it. Um, Great nonfiction piece uh, by an English author named Ed Caesar. Um, And I became aware of this through one of my favorite podcasts called The Adventure Podcast. And um, Ed's a a longtime writer for The New Yorker and some other publications. And and this book is called The Moth and the Mountain. And it's about a eccentric adventurer in the 1930s who had served in World War I and was a bit at loose ends, um, but was inspired by some of the 1920s Everest expeditions um, that the British had put on and kind of come close but failed. And And he got it in his head that he wanted to be the first person to summit Mount Everest. And even though he had no, no mountaineering experience. Um, and the other complication was he had to get to, from England, he had to get to Mount Everest to climb it. And his method of doing that, or his plan, was to fly there. Now, we're talking 1930s, so early days of flight. Uh, the other complication was, in addition to not being a mountaineer, he was not a pilot. He had no idea how to fly. Oh, my goodness. So he took flying what, lessons. What Actually, be- before he took flying lessons, he bought a plane. He bought a tiger moth, which is the moth in the title, which is a wooden fabric uh, biplane. And he took flying lessons. And within... Two or three months of intensive lessons, uh, during which his his flying instructor discouraged him adamantly not to undertake this crazy mission. He he learned enough to to fly, and he flew all the way to Darjeeling, India, which was the wow. at then at that time part of the British Empire and was the jumping off point for Everest expeditions, and set off to climb Everest. And uh, you know, a bit of a tragic story. He obviously didn't make it, as we know, because uh, he wasn't the first to climb it. But, you know, one of those interesting stories about, you know, I mean, it takes eccentric people, right, to do do a lot of these things that, that we're so fascinated with. And I think he, if there's one lesson, it's, you know, this guy's a person who had a dream and wouldn't let anything stand in his way to, to accomplish it. So um, good read. While it came with its costs, as it normally, as it usually does at some level, you do have to kind of admire the guy's general level of how hard can it be <laughs> attitude. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know. All right, mountain. It's yeah. real far away. All right. Well, I don't want to drive. That's going to take too yeah. long. Yeah. <laughs> Let me get a plane. All right. Well, you're going to have to get a pilot's license first. All right. I got time for that. Sure. <laughs> and for 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 exercise or for for training, I think he was walking around the airfield in his hobnail boots, carrying his backpack, and he actually learned how to fly wearing his hobnail boots because he he had limited room in the plane to take all of his gear. So he wanted to wear as much of his climbing gear while he was flying. So he wouldn't have to pack extra stuff. And so he would 
you know, work the, the rudder, you know, the pedals in the plane with his hobnail boots on. I mean, just mm-hmm. interesting stuff. Great, great read. Really great. Crazy. Read. Yeah. Well, great tip. Um, yeah. Mine's a, mine's a different thing, but not, not that far outside of what we like to talk about. I, you know, I, I, Jason, and I both have a really strong love of making photography more about the image than the gear as much as you possibly can. And uh, this is a neat uh, product. Unfortunately, it's entirely pre-ordered. I thought that I had an order in and uh, I've only registered my interest. (laughs) It must have been very popular and I was behind the gun on this, but it is called the paper shoot camera. Fascinating. It's about $120. And the idea is that it's, um, it's similar level of quality to what you'd get from your average, maybe above average cell phone in terms of image quality, but it's not about image quality. Um, it's kind of about simplicity and and getting all of the gear out of the way and just taking photos. So it's this um, little kind of module that you then wrap in a case of some sort, and then the case kind of threads in with um, with a, a hardware. So it kind of wraps around like a book cover. Yeah, and it has a hole in it that the lens goes through. There's a few lens modifiers. There's like a wide angle and a telephoto. You can check those out on their site if you want. But at its base, it's a 13 megapixel digital camera with a single button operation and no screen. So the idea is that you kind of, there's a memory card that goes into the module. You use it, you take pictures as you would with a disposable camera or a film camera. And, um, and then when you get home, you download the images and kind of see what you got. And normally I'd kind of roll my eyes at this, but I've seen some of the images that it comes with and they're perfectly acceptable and kind of lovable in that low contrast, not quite like um, Lomo, uh, yeah. photography or pinhole photography. It's more accurate than that. It's more modern than that in terms of the outcome, but it is a fairly simple sensor. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by it. I think it's a neat program. And at $120, you know, I, I've talked a lot about these things that allow us to get younger people into these sort of fascination based hobbies. Yeah. And, and I think that could be a, a, a resin cased watch that you can't replace the battery of <laughs> as long as it sparks joy. And I think in some way it can also be one of these cameras where you're, you're able to introduce somebody to the idea of taking photos and, and being thoughtful about the photos that they take, but it's kind of, they're unburdened by both the cost. And, and then even if you compare it to film cameras, this is $120 for one of these is where they start. If you go to film, it's not going to take you long to spend $120 in stock and development. Yeah. So if your goal is really just to kind of get out there and experience cameras and maybe not always do it with your cell phone, um, I think this is a nice kind of pure, simple way of doing it. And and I think for $120, I absolutely want one. They've got one that looks like a cassette deck. They've got another that's clear, like the Game Boy I always wanted when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> I like the cork they're one. They're really cool. The, pardon? I like the cork one. I want the cork one. The cork one. one's really yeah. cool. Yeah. So they're basically these wrappers that are kind of like a, like that, like the the wrapper you might put on a, um, on a moleskin notebook. Oh yeah. Good. Right. If you imagine yeah, like that yeah. and they kind of slide over and then it's just one button, a button turns it on, you tap it again to take a picture and then you download them later. It says it's compatible with Wi-Fi SD card. So if you wanted to, for whatever reason, make this more expensive than it needs to be, you could <laughs> conceivably Wi-Fi these sure. paper shoot camera photos to your phone. But otherwise I think you're going to be, you know, connecting to some sort of a, a file system, a computer or, or similar um, using a, a USB cable. I think this is clever. I think it's the right price. Obviously, it's very popular. They're entirely sold out. You have to kind of get on a list at this point. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I, hopefully I can get one and, and let my kids run around with it and use it. And the, the only thing that came to mind with these is, is what Jason brought up in a, the previous version of this recording, long, long gone, 
is it, you know, whether or not they'll make a, a kind of heavy duty or case, not necessarily one that would go underwater, but one with some IP67, you know, so it could be dropped in a puddle or, or get rain on it or that sort of thing. It'll be interesting to see where yeah. they kind of take it. But from the start, I think this is a good program. I think so too. It's uh, like you said, for a kid or just like as a little personal experiment to just not have a screen. Yeah. So you can just go out and just shoot. It's almost like shooting film. Like, you know, where you don't know yep. quite what you're getting, but then you get home and there's yeah. that element of surprise. Like, what did I take today? You know, I was, I was thinking about it last night, um, you know, after we recorded and then I was <laughs> editing that stupid show. Um, <laughs> and, and I thought the other thing, the other one where this might work is you've, let's say, you know, obviously once we get through a proper round of vaccines and people start to travel again at yeah. some level, yeah. imagine you've got an 18 year old kid, they're finishing high school, they're doing a summer abroad. Your people are always worried about you know doing the hostile to hostile thing and getting stuff stolen. Right, right. And and I think this would be dear enough that in many ways you could take two if you wanted to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you could charge this with a USB bat, like with a you can. Sorry, you don't have to charge it. You can just carry a handful of batteries. Yeah, it's clearly not going to use a ton of power. I think for that kind of use, where what you want is um is a device that can take a decent picture of you and your friends and and maybe some scenery. Yeah, I think this could make an amazing travel camera for someone who doesn't want to carry right. a camera that might get stolen or that they have to then also carry another charger and other batteries and other accessories for. Yeah, it gets all of that kind of out of the way, and you could just kind of snap some snap some pics. and And I think where my mind goes is like, well, could you buy something as good as this for less than one hundred and twenty dollars? Probably, but you'd be buying something a little bit more complicated, like a used older PowerShot or a Nikon or something mm. like that. Mm-hmm. And then on the on the other side, I don't I don't know that you could get a more a, a better solution in the film world for one hundred and twenty dollars. And the AE one costs more than that. Yeah, uh, an X seven hundred costs more than that. My XA costs about that. And they're they're much more finicky and much more expensive things to deal with. This is very straightforward. So I'm I'm hoping to get a chance to play with it. You know, I mean, people will say, "Oh, just take your phone," but th- this isn't about that. You know, this is this is about a, kind of a an interesting experiment. Um, something you know introduce kids to photography um something that probably slips in a pocket a little easier than anything else and um i, I don't know as i as i said in the long lost episode uh it's uh, it's just fun to support people that are doing interesting projects like this this is the you know this is the morris wilson moth in the mountain guy of of cameras yeah. you know this is just somebody went out on a on a bit of a a whim here to to kind of create something fun so yeah, challenges a little bit of the convention, but yeah. I, I think it'll be cool. I'll, I'll report back once I've got one and, and have had a chance to shoot it a bit. Um, but it looks pretty straightforward and, uh, and and like a good time. And who who doesn't like another camera, especially when it's not one you have to um, worry yeah. about hitting your credit card. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's the show. Jason, congratulations on seeing Depth Charge come to reality. I think this is a kind of a fun moment um, for certainly for you, but obviously for anyone who cares about you or who's followed uh, followed what you're up to. Um, I'm excited to see how it goes. I'm really excited to get my copy. I hope it's here so that when I'm done creating this episode and hopefully I don't ruin this one as well, I can, I can crack into the book, um, with, uh, with a nice whiskey or something this evening. Oh yeah. I appreciate your, uh, you're taking the time to, to kind of devote an episode to this. I think, uh, it's been fun to talk oh, about please. and, uh, and I certainly hope this rec- <laughs> this editing process goes better than the last time or we'll be, we'll be talking about it again this evening <laughs> and we'll do the whole thing on clubhouse live. Oh man. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. You can hit the show notes by hodinky.com or the feed for more details. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram at Jason Heaton, at J.E. Stacy, and at The Grey NATO. 
If you have any questions for us, please write thegraynado at gmail.com and please keep sending in your voice memos. We've got a ton of them. It's going to be a great Q&A episode. Uh, so get them in if you want them in. We're going to do that pretty soon. Please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcast. And Music Throughout is partly Siesta by Jazzar via the Free Music Archive. And the theme music, the Depth Charge theme by Oren Chan. Nice. And we leave you with this quote from John Barth, which also happens to be the quote at the beginning of Depth Charge. You don't reach Serendib, and that's the former name for Sri Lanka from which we get the word serendipity, by plotting a course for it. You have to set out in good faith for elsewhere and lose your bearings. <laughs>